something, bring it out as well, and if not, the words are on the screen. And I'm reading from the NIV, the New International Version. John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Verse 6. I have revealed to you, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they were, that they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours. And all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doom and destruction so that the scripture will be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them and they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. And they are not of the world, even as I am of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, and they too may be truly sanctified. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory and the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know you have sent me. And I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. May the Lord bless his holy word. Um, 
also to announce that about, I don't know the exact number, 30, 40 of our people are away this morning. They're together on a camp up at Mount Tambourine. Um, the reason we don't know the numbers is because we know 20 sites have been booked. So it's 20 units or families. And so whether it's double or, you know, and kids and so on. So they're having a great time, I assume, up there on Mount Tambourine. They'll be back sometime this afternoon. So it'll be good for us to pray for them as we pray for ourselves here. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for the opportunity to be together. And we remember our brothers and sisters who are away together on a camp. We pray that they'll be having a good, safe and a great time, an enjoyable time. And may they have significant connection points with you as they fellowship together. We pray you'll bring them home safely as well on the roads this afternoon. We pray for any brothers and sisters that we have who would normally be with us, but through illness or absence due to work or holidays, that you'll be with them and that you will bless them and remind them of your nearness and of our love and care for them. And then, Lord, we pray for ourselves, as Michael has. I pray, too, that you might speak to us by your Spirit and shape us to be the church that Jesus loves and is building. And we pray in his name. Amen. We are two weeks into a series which will take us to the end of November about the church Jesus builds. <clears throat> and the question is, what does that church look like? the church that Jesus is building. We began last week by saying the church that the Lord Jesus is building is a church which is based upon him. It's about him and it's about a relationship with him. The church Jesus is building is uh, open to everybody. Nobody is excluded, but only believers are included. There has to be a transaction, a change of kingdom where people on the outside of the kingdom who don't know Jesus yet, hear about him, repent, believe, accept him, and they are baptised into his church, universal and local. That's the church the Lord Jesus is building. This morning we're going to go on and talk about, well, this church that the Lord Jesus is building is one that he wants to be united. So last week I told you about how Peter said that you needed to repent and become Baptists. Remember that? Well, this week it's about uniting. So we'll just work our way through the denominations as we go through this series, perhaps. No one is excluded, but only believers are included. And so the question becomes, are you included? Are you in the church the Lord Jesus is building? He wants you in. He died on Calvary's cross in order to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could be reconciled to him and then join him with his mission work in the world. Um, so unity. The church Jesus is building is one church and he wants that oneness to be demonstrated and experienced. This is what he is praying in John chapter 17 and I commend that chapter to you and invite you when you go home, uh, take out your Bible again and reread John chapter 17 and have a pencil and if you underline your Bible, do so, but if you don't, then have a bit of paper and write these down and every time you see the word that or so that, the Lord Jesus prays something and then he'll say that this might happen or so that this will happen. And it's interesting to examine that because that will reveal the heart of his prayer of why he wants the oneness he has with the Father to be demonstrated in us. And there are several reasons, I'll talk about some of them, but there are several reasons that I won't mention that are in that chapter. My first point this morning, and there are about four or five points, there could be eight. 
but because of time and because eight is far too many for anybody to remember, I'm just going to give you about four or five. Number one, the unity that Jesus is building his church is a gift. It's something that we receive. It's not something that we work for. It's not something that we create. It is given to us by God. And this unity is primarily linked with, like last week's talk, it's a unity with God, a connection with him. That's why we can't create it. That's why it's something we receive. It's that which he gives for us. The Lord Jesus prays in John 17, 21, that we would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one, that we would be one with them, connected with God. Our focus for this year, to connect with God and with one another. The reason Jesus prays that we will have this closeness, this connection with God, is so that the world will know that the Father sent the Son. It has a missional component to it. That's why unity is so important. Excuse me. Jesus models this unity in his relationship with the Father. You need to think about this. And if you haven't read the book, The Shack, I know this is controversial, but if you haven't read the novel, The Shack, uh, let me commend it to you and encourage you to read it. I personally think, theologically speaking, The Shack gives a remarkable illustration of the relationship of what it's like in the Trinity. And I think it is more theologically accurate than many other understandings, particularly hierarchical understandings of the Trinity. So I commend that to you. I know not everybody likes it, but no, they're wrong. Um, you need to extend grace. What's that relationship like between the Father and Son? Well, it's beyond imagination. Let me throw some words and pictures at you. It's a relationship of perfect harmony where what one thinks the other one agrees with, what one feels the other one is feeling and responding with. It's like a dance where there is this mutual respect, this oneness that they think and feel and choose and plan as one. Rhonda and I get glimpses of that, but we only get glimpses because she can be a stubborn, defiant individual. Oh, sorry, I can be a stubborn, defiant individual. You see, we spoil it because of sin. The Father and the Son were never separated except one time. When the Lord Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the Father forsake him? Because the Lord Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world. It was sin that separates. That's the only time in eternity where the Father and the Son have this. The Son has this experience of separation from the Father. There's no competition between them. There is no disharmony. There is no reluctance. There's always just this yes to what each other is thinking and saying and feeling. God is trying. There's no interruption to the relationship except that one time that I mentioned. And what Jesus had with the Father, he wants us to have. That's what he's praying. He wants us to have that close intimacy walk by his spirit in us with the Father and with the Son. The Lord Jesus died to make it possible. He rose to ensure that it, in fact, does happen. Um, so unity, this unity, with God, is something that we receive, not achieve. Jesus achieved it for us. We just have to download it, if you like, into our life. He wants us to have it, to live in it, and to enjoy it. That's normal 
Christianity. But this oneness, likewise, while it's a gift, there is another dimension, there are several other dimensions to unity, where we need to be in agreement and some effort is required. But it all flows out of and is based upon that first unity. We can manufacture some sort of agreement on a human level together, but it will not last because of our own sinfulness and preoccupation with ourselves, it tends to separate us. Only the Spirit can bring about this true unity. And the Spirit certainly wants us to be united in all these different aspects. I think between um, the cross of the Lord Jesus, him dying to establish a us to have a relationship with him, and the coming of the Lord Jesus where... The church will be glorified and perfected and fully mature and we will be certainly united then. Between the cross and between the coming, in here, in the between time, in our lives, in this world, there are six other dimensions to unity that we are to have some involvement with, that we are to work towards. And this is where some effort is required and some agreement. And we won't get it to perfection. And there are some limitations we have to accept. But here are the six dimensions that I can think of. And there could very well be others. Um, <clears throat> a couple of guys, Tony Payne and somebody else, wrote a book called The Trellis and the Vine a couple of years ago. The Trellis and the Vine is a book about the church. And it's a very helpful metaphor in which they talk about, you know what a trellis is, you know that wooden structure that plants grow on? So the trellis and the vine is this double dimension of the church. There are things about the church like the trellis, that's the organisation or the building or some of the practical runnings of it, it's the skeleton. But the vine are the people and the ministries and the direction of the church, the trellis and the vine. And in the unity, there has to be unity in the trellis and there has to be unity in the vine. In terms of the trellis, that is certainly our structural unity. I'm not going to talk a lot. I'll come back to it in a minute, a couple of minutes. Um, just very little about it this morning. But it's how we're structured, how we govern ourselves as a local church. Um, there also has to be doctrinal unity. I'll spend some time on that. That's the trellis. But the vine part is there has to be missional unity. We agree on our mission. There is relational unity. That's the one I think we most commonly think of when we think about unity. Related, united with one another. Not divided, um, not out of step with each other, but relational unity. But in the local church, there also has to be some sort of ministry, a philosophy of ministry, which is what we agree about. It's how we do things. It's how we worship. It's how we um, do the ordinances, the baptism and communion. Ministry, philosophy, unity. And then finally, the sixth one is, there is also a sense of inter-church unity. Not just within the Baptist denomination, but also across denominational lines, particularly at the local level, where we do things with other churches and sometimes with other denominations. Now, let me emphasise again, this is all based on and flows out of knowing Jesus. That's how John 17 begins. Is that clock correct? Is it 9.40? Put your seatbelts on. John 17 verse 3 is, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's all based upon knowing Jesus. You need to know him. Not know about him, 
though to know him, there are things you need to know about him, but it's to know him personally. And the most important question you can get today is, do you know Jesus in this deep, close, personal way? That's what he wants. That's why you were made. That's the best way to live. My wife, Rhonda, has a close friend called Margaret Grant. I've told you this story before. Margaret Grant was a teacher in a school that Rhonda used to teach at before, and they've still been in touch over the years, Christmas and those sorts of things. Margaret Grant is married to a bloke called Mark. Mark Grant. Mark Grant knows Steve Wall. Do you know Steve Wall? Australian Test cricketer. Used to be. He knows Mark Wall because they went to school together and because they're close friends. So when Mark Grant, husband of Margaret, friend of my wife, Rhonda, when Mark Grant says to Steve, G'day Steve, Steve would say back to him, G'day Mark. If I were to say to Steve Wall, G'day Mr Wall, he would say, what's your name? Who are you? He doesn't know me. I know about him, but I don't know him. And if I ever had that experience, I would say to him, G'day Mr War, and he'll say, who are you? And I'll say, I'm Rhonda's husband. And he would go, I've heard about her. She's famous. So it's that same thing. It's Jesus wants us to know him and to know the Father, that God is personal. Um, there are 150 billion stars in the universe and they're just big balls of gas. But the Bible says to us that God gives each of those stars a name. 150 billion of them. Gives each one of them a name. But you're far more important than a big ball of gas. You're made in his image. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, the Bible says that we are his, his workmanship, his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2.10 The Father knows you. He knows you personally, he knows you intimately, and he wants you to know him. That's what flows into this unity. It's based upon our connection with the Father. So there is, here we go, I'll give three. There is doctrinal unity. Jesus cares what we believe, what we think, and what we teach. And he wants us to enjoy those truths together as a church. Now this is this church, Sunnybank District Baptist Church. And of course, I'm talking about the essentials in the faith. There are non-essentials, there are theological positions where we have different opinions. But when it comes to the essentials of the faith, then we are to be united, in agreement, no dissent, no arguments about the essentials in the faith. Well, what are the essentials? Well, we could talk about that on another day, but Trinity, Jesus, Bible, and something about us and eternity, judgment. A statement about each of those, that becomes the doctrinal basis of the church. And to become part of our church, you need to agree on those things. And if you don't believe or agree to those things, then you can attend, but you can't really be united with us. There is a doctrinal unity for all believers, cross denominational lines, that we should hold about him. These are the words that Jesus gave. These are the words Jesus received from the Father. These are the words that the truths that the Holy Spirit has inspired and put in the scriptures. We ought not to divide over doctrinal matters that are not essential. We should hold carefully. This is one of the reasons why I choose uh, 
to be a Baptist. I'm a Baptist about second, third. I'm a Christian first. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus. And I happen to choose to be a Christian and a follower of the Lord Jesus who believes and thinks more like a Baptist, Baptistic theology, than I do like, than an Anglican or a Presbyterian or anybody else. There are many things on the essentials we think all the same, but on some specific things, well, we think differently. And one day when Jesus returns, they will all be Baptists. That's what we believe. <laughs> That's not true. When Jesus returns, we will be one church and we'll be all believers. There are no denominations in heaven. None. Um, Matthew 15, uh, the Lord Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it's not a bad text to illustrate that there are people who are religious who take the Bible and some people water it down, take stuff away. The Sadducees were Bible-less people. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were politically involved and influencing and they thought, this is it, this world is it. And so when they read the Bible, they filtered it through that thing. Well, people still do that today. And Jesus' response to them was, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And so they're not in. They're not united. Or the other extreme, uh, the Pharisees, that they're Bible plus people. They're the ones who add to the traditions and the rules and the regulations. They're the ones who are concerned about the non-essentials. It's about the music we have or the way we dress or the Bible version we use or whether we can go to movies or whether we can play games or what we do on Sunday, all of those issues. And the Pharisee types are those who love rules, love to make rules, love to interpret the rules and love to enforce the rules. And unfortunately, it makes them judgmental, separate and divisive. No, that's not it either. Jesus says, beware of those two groups. Where we stand is that we believe in liberty. We have commitment and unity on the essentials and we have liberty of conscience. I will defend your right to believe what you want to believe, even if I don't agree with you. But I have to defend your right to do that. Otherwise, I lose the right to do that. I have to um, support that we are free to, on these other non-essential issues, and on non-essentials, we are to be respectful and fair. There's doctrinal unity. You're only going to get the skim surface. Now, there is missional unity. Uh, that, that's why Jesus, John 17, he prays it through, that the Father and the Son have the same mission. There is one mission. It's shared between all members of the Trinity, and it's a rescue mission. Father is on mission, the Son is on mission, the Spirit is on mission. And they came in, Jesus came into the world to fulfill that mission, to achieve it. And he hung around with, he associated with people who were lost and far from God in order to win them back. And now he wants us to join with him in that mission. Go associate with people who are far from God. Build a relation with, with them. Connect with them. Have conversations with them. Pray for the opportunity to convince them of the truth, to present the gospel to them. Live the life before them. This is why unity in the church, which we'll come to in a moment, relational, is so crucial. Because it's the outside world looking in saying, how do you guys get on like you do? I mean, look at you this morning. There's different ages, different races, different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic standards, different educational standards. We're different. And yet we're all together in one place. We don't have women sitting on one side and men sitting on the other. Though if you think that's a good idea... 
Somebody coming amongst us should be impressed by and attracted to how does this happen? Well, it's not us. It's Jesus in us that does it. And that's one thing why the devil wants to divide churches. He wants that witness, that missionary focus to be disparaged. We are all on mission. Um, joining mission. Now, every local church, every church the Lord Jesus is building is on exactly the same mission because there is only one mission. It's the Great Commission. Go into the world, make disciples, baptise them, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. We can use different words, and we do. But that's what we're talking about, the same mission. Our mission statement is to work with God in transforming people into passionate followers of Jesus. It's the whole, like, whole concept. It's the whole shooting match. Everything we do should be about that. If there's anything we do which is not about that, we should stop doing it. I can't think of anything that we are doing that is not moving in that direction. Even Operation Christmas Child is a step towards doing that. It's us working together to provide a practical gift to give to a child that they might know and hear about the Lord Jesus. Why? So they can be transformed into one of his followers. That's what it's about. I don't have time, but I want to tell you this story anyway. I heard yesterday, or I was at a conference the last two days, I heard about a pastor in Chicago. And he was talking about stepping in the gap, you know, recognising where there is a need and the church stepping into it. And he recognised the need. Somebody came to him, whether it was the mayor or somebody high up in the city of Chicago, and said something like, there are five or six hundred young girls who are prostitutes. Can the church help? We need to do something about this. And so he went to the church and spoke about it. Um, and he eventually came up with this strategy. He got his secretary. He said, I want you to go find for me five prostitutes. And she went and found them. After she thought, you know... He was going off the rails. His wife is with him, so it was all above board. The girls come, and the secretary comes over, not aware of what he's going to do, and uh, she says to him, uh, that girl says, you know, she charges $50, and this one is $35, and that one's $40, and, and so on. Then he takes out his money, and he pays. There's your $50, there's your $35, there's your $40, and so on, to all five girls. They don't know what's going on. They think it's a normal transaction. And they said, what would you like us to do for you? He said, I want you to come with me and I want you to sit down. He takes them inside the church building or wherever it was where there are tables set with candles and flowers and, you know, it's like a restaurant. And he says, I've paid for you for one hour. I want you to sit at the table and I want to tell you about somebody who loves you so much that he came into this world and died on the cross to pay for all of your sins. So for one hour, he shared the gospel with them, spoilt them, pampered them, and at the end of it, they were so moved, they said, we've never had anybody treat us like this. They gave him back the money, said, we don't want your money. Now, some of those girls have come to know Jesus. And some of those girls who have done that are now back trying to reach the other girls who are prostitutes. Isn't that incredible? Would you like to do that? I wouldn't mind. Standing in the gap. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he wants us to do. And we need to be united in that mission. We do that when we do kids club. We as a church are united around a mission and a focus and a purpose. And you get behind it. And it's incredible. 
We do it again at Carol's, where you as a church get behind it. And the whole purpose is to provide a Carol's environment with a fair in order that people can hear the message of Christmas. That's why we do it. And you're part of it. There needs to be this missional unity. Finally, there needs to be relational unity. Um, And I think that one's obvious. It's where we don't let anything divide us one from the other. It's not about liking one another. It's about being committed and gracious and loving towards one another. The church, the Lord Jesus certainly expects the church to experience that sort of unity, to preserve the unity of the spirit. One, we won't have it perfectly. One day we will. Between now and then we are to work towards that. So not letting anything come between us and a relationship with a brother in this church particularly. So there's doctrinal unity, there's missional unity, there's relational unity. And I don't have time to talk at all about organisational or philosophy of ministry or inter-church unity. Except I'll say this and then close. On the philosophy of ministry unity, I want you to imagine three Christians. This one, who is a passionate follower of Jesus, but they like a church which has a liturgy. They like handbells and choirs and they like pastors in robes and they like communion with wafers. And Jesus loves them. There's another Christian here, and they want to sing just two songs in a service, but they want to sing them 20 times. And they want to raise their arms, and they want to speak in tongues, and they want to stand for two hours to do it. And Jesus loves them. And then there is a third one over here. He only wants to sing three songs, and he wants to sing them once. And then he wants to sit down for two hours and listen to the Bible being taught. And Jesus does, yes, Jesus does love him. Differences in different churches that are all seeking to love and glorify the one Lord. What's necessary is that in this church, in a local church, we are agreed on which way we are going to be doing that. Now, I know there's tensions out there about that very issue. So we'll talk that through when we've started that process. But don't take your eye off the ball. We're united with him. We love him and he loves us and he wants us to experience and enjoy that and he wants that to overflow into our relationships and love and care for one another. Why does Jesus value unity? Because then the world will see, John 17, then the world will see and know that the Father sent the Son. The church Jesus is building is a united church and he wants it united and the devil wants to divide it and we've got to make a choice about who we're going to follow. Let's, time's gone so we won't sing our final song. How about we stand together and I'll close with prayer.